Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Whether you're adding to the energy of the room or following us online on our live stream, which I think is now up, we're thrilled that you've decided to join us. It's a good looking crowd. How many people are under eight in the crowd? <laughs> Thought so. How about over 80? Okay, we're off the hook but we're kind of an exclusive crowd, it looks like. Um, hey, my name's John Morrow, and I'm Council's Chief Sustainability Officer. And I think uh, me and I think some of my team, can you raise your hand if you're in my team, just to embarrass you a bit? Um, people can tag you for good sustainability advice on the way out. Um, we want to mainstream sustainability in Auckland, and beyond, perhaps. And uh, put simply, it's just to make Auckland better for all forever. Uh, before I say a little bit more about that and introduce our uh, distinguished speaker, I wanted to go through some housekeeping. Um, those of you who are Auckland Conversation groupies know that the restrooms are out that way. Um, others just look really urgent and maybe somebody will help you. Um, if the cabin pressure decreases, am I reading this right? Um, take a deep breath and listen to, uh, to Gil. Um, it should calm you down and get you really uh, uh, back on track. In a real emergency though, um, an alarm will sound. We have ushers. They will usher you out from whence you came. Um, in some sort of disgruntled Brexit kind of a way. So please, uh, on that way, please look out for each other. Just, you can't really resist, right? It's just right top of mind. Um, so what's better than actually doing something? Um, telling people you did it, right? So I'm going to introduce us to social media, as I want to do. Look alive, people. <laughs> awesome. Great. So you can join us on Twitter. Um, it's hashtag Auckland Conversations, um, AKL Conversations, that is. And I am at uh, Sustainable AKL. So find us out there and uh, continue the conversation we started on Monday night uh, when we did a little pre-warm-up uh, Q&A. Um, as I tend to do, um, we're uh, already out of time. No, just kidding. Um, why don't I introduce... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, our sponsors. So we, this clearly would not be possible without the support of our sponsors. And um, I think the first, first up is Auckland Transport. Um, we uh, collaborated to bring Gil here, so um, big hats off to AT. Um, we'd also like to uh, thank our partner sponsors, Razine and Jib. We'd like to thank our program supporters, Brookfield's Lawyers, Bafa Miskel, Architectural Designers New Zealand, MR Cagney, New Zealand Institute of Architects, New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. Let's give them all a hand. And hey, if you missed it on the way in, um, check it out on the way out. We have two booths back there. Um, one is the elections planning team, um, and they're ready to talk about elections. And I would say, now's your chance to run for council or local board. Um, and I kind of mean that, actually. We need some enlightened people to get in the races and to, uh, to step up for their city, um, to join some of those in the audience who are enlightened and actually here tonight. So thank you for joining us, Councillor Darby, Deputy Mayor House. Um, I see some local board chairs as well. Raise your hand if you're an elected official. Graham East over there, Vernon Tava, fantastic. Um, go, go hit them up for some advice as you're on, on your way to being elected. The other booth we have back there is for AT, the walking and cycling teams back there. You could learn about their infrastructure magic and what they've got planned. Um, truly, this team is transforming our urban landscape, so let's give both of those groups a bit of a hand as well. So let me take us back just to mainstreaming sustainability just for one little bit here. Simply put, we cannot make progress on sustainability if we don't look long and hard at how we literally transform our relationship with this place, Tamaki Makoto. 
Each interaction, each movement, simply existing in this place is a statement about who we are and what we want this relationship to be. If we want to be sustainable, we want that relationship to be better. It means humanizing our urban landscape, creating places to foster connection, social exchange, fun, happiness. It means finding smarter and healthier and more enjoyable ways of getting around. It means recognizing that we actually design with our policy and our infrastructure, and we could choose to do so for better or for worse for uh, social outcomes and social justice and equality. How well are we taking care of our most vulnerable? Well, that's kind of where the all comes in. Um, Twitter feed just died. If we want to be sustainable, this is, um, this is gonna, it has to be for all. 880 Cities reminds us that our kids, our parents, our grandparents, maybe us, uh, we're vulnerable. And it's a, it's a society's job to ensure that everybody's cared for. We're doing some awesome stuff here in Auckland. We've seen an unprecedented growth in cycling and cycling infrastructure, well-designed cycleways for the average person who just wants to get out and ride a bike to get around. Um, where cars used to sit parked all day, we've seen an emergence of shared streets, wonderfully crowded with people eating and talking and exchanging. Um, the Tapunu Manga Authority has seen an impressive transition to manga that are alcohol-free, smoke-free, and the instance of Mangafo Summit vehicle-free as well, um, as well as the return of native trees to the top of Manga Kiki. And we're finally getting our PT system up to modern standards with stations like pedestrian fountains and a burst of transit-oriented design in the works. But let's be honest, we've got a long way to go. We have some distance to travel to get to the kind of place, the kind of home that we're seeking. More New Zealand children die as pedestrians on our roads than die of violence, abuse, or neglect. And I've got a kid, you can tell. 44% of those kids who are hospitalized live in Auckland. That's disproportionate to our population. What's the next biggest group to be affected? I bet you can guess, it's over 65. Public space, uh, oh, it, I should also mention, it's a social justice issue as well. Uh, Maori and Pacifica people are twice as at risk as Pakia because they tend to spend more time on average walking through urban environments that are busy with roads. So let me say again, public space is a social justice issue. It's also a health issue. Our obesity stats are just alarming with about 66% of people overweight or obese and increasing. Um, and kids living in the most deprived areas in our town are five times as likely to be, as obese, uh, to be obese as kids living in the, the least deprived places. And what really bugs me is that there's so much low-hanging fruit rotting on the tree. Almost every place I go, uh, there are untapped opportunities for tactical urbanism, the, the application of the Urban Street Design Guide, for instance, from our friends at NACTO, or the need to, complete, uh, to, to create more complete streets, or maybe adding some of Jaime Lerner's urban acupuncture points. So there are quick wins, and many of them, frankly, should have been done a long time ago. But while these quick wins are critically important uh, to, to build the momentum in the buy-in, we also needed a sustained and visionary commitment to the principles of an 880 city, and to move collectively in the direction with confidence, with courage, and with a commitment to keep on going. So let's pause on a journey home to look around. Let's learn from others. Uh, let's discuss what we want to become. Because once we get to that place of greatness, which I know we can all get to, when people ask us who that most livable city in the world is for, we can say every single one of us. So I'll be back to MC, a panel discussion, and pull you into the conversation. But this is why you're here. And I'm about to introduce this person in our midst, Gil Penulosa. Gil is passionate about cities for all people. 
Gill advises decision makers and communities on how to create vibrant cities and healthy communities for everyone, regardless of age or social status. Gill is the founder and chair of internationally recognized not-for-profit organization 880 Cities. He is also the chair of urban, uh, World Urban Parks, the international representative body for city parks, open space, and recreation. Gill's advice has been sought out in more than 200 different cities across six continents. I probably can't even name 200 cities. Before immigrating to Canada, Gill was commissioner of parks and recreation in Bogota. He holds an MBA from UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where he recently was selected as one of the, one of the most 100 inspirational alumni in the school's history. In 2014, Gill received a doctorate honoris causa from the Faculty of Urban Planning at the prominent University of Sweden, SLU. The 880 Cities mission to improve the quality of life for people in cities by bringing citizens together to enhance mobility in public space so that together we can create more vibrant, healthy, and equitable communities. I can't wait to learn more. So your mission, please join me in giving Gil a warm Kiwi welcome. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Thanks. So tonight, we're going to talk about cities. Cities is so interesting. Just a hundred years ago, we only had 200 million people living in cities. Today, we got over three and a half billion people living in cities. And within the next 30 or 40 years, we're going to have seven billion people living in cities. In many ways, it's a challenge, but it's a wonderful opportunity that all of us have the opportunity to influence one way or another on how do we want to live. Because the population is leveling off, but it's going to level off around 2050, 2060, so it's not going to continue to grow. But over the next 30 or 40 years, we're going to build as many cities as we have built in the history of humanity. And yes, there have been some successes. For example, we have from the point of view of water, we open the tap, we get water, and we assume that that is normal. But in 1990, we had 4 billion people with water. Today, we got about 6 billion. So we say, oh, major success, 25 years, from 4 to 6. But still, we got 1.2 billion people who do not have access to water. And access to sewage, and sanitation, we got 2.6 billion people that do not have access. That's one out of three people. So this is put a little bit putting things into context before we come down to Auckland. Another big trend that is really interesting is that we're living longer. Much, much longer. This is so exciting. You know the people in the history of humanity that live to 65 Half are alive today. Half. And actually, I think the biggest waste of resource that we have in New Zealand and pretty much all over the world is the older adults. People retire and we cross them out as if they had died. Except that they got 20, 30, 40 years and these people are healthier and wealthier and more active and more traveled and with more knowledge. They could be tutoring students in the schools. They could be teaching English to the, to the immigrants. They could be organizing activities in the parks, tai chi, yoga. They could be fantastic partners with the cities. You know, 180 years ago, 
This is the life expectancy. Just 100 years ago, all of these circles are the countries in the world. We didn't have one country that had a life expectancy above 45. Today, we don't have one country that has a life expectancy below 45. That's exciting. And people are not retiring. I said, let's not talk about retirement. Let's talk about retirement. <laughs> in all ways. This is, I call it the, 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 the great bloom because people tend to think, oh, the great tsunami. It has nothing to do with the tsunami. The bloom because people are eager. Our universities, at least 20 or 30% of the courses in our universities should be for older adults. People are hungry to learn about everything. Gardening, music, history, philosophy, about everything. And we got the classrooms empty in the afternoons, and we got thousands of masters and PhD students that could be wonderful professors. Oh, this could be really, really exciting. This is opening. This is, you know, the people in New Zealand, the people over 65, the population is going to double in the next 25 years. And the population over 80 is going to quadruple. So it's very clear that we need to improve the cities that we have today, but also we got to create great cities for all this new population. That's why we're talking about cities for people. So today, we're talking about vibrant and healthy cities for all. So I'm going to be talking about vibrant cities, healthy communities, happier people, putting some emphasis in equity and public health, but I'm going to... To put things into context, I'm going to start with Bogota and 880 cities, and then I'm going to end with eight messages. Why Bogota? Obviously, Bogota is not the ideal city. It's decades, decades behind Oakland in every way. But in my previous life, now I live in Canada, in my previous life I was commissioner in Bogota. And I learned that issues is not about the money. When I go to cities, always the biggest, oh, we don't have the budget, we don't have money. It's not about the money. Also, I've been doing, so I know that doing is not, sometimes is not as easy as you would like it to be. But it's doable. For example, in six years, in two terms, we built over 800 parks all over the city from, from scratch. Small parks, large parks, medium parks for active recreation, for passive. This was one of them. The Pope came here, gave a mass for a million people, and left. And the city put a wire fence around it, and nothing happened. No one could go in. They planted a few trees. There was not even a footpath. There was nothing. Almost nothing happened for 27 years. Why nothing happened? Because it's easier not to do anything new. It's easier not to change. It's easier to do more of the same, because when you try to do things, the cave people show up. <laughs> They are the citizens against virtually everything. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be everywhere. But also I learned that the citizens pay us every other week is to get things done, not to have too many excuses why things cannot be done. So each one of us has to become a champion at finding solutions to the problems, not at finding problems to the solutions. And that, we got to find the little crack through the window and run through it. So for 27 years, almost nothing happened. And in four years, we turned it into the nicest park for culture and recreation and sports, things that people can do at their own pace, at their own time. And the uses and the activities of all ages. Uses and activities are critical in the parks and public places. Actually, I find that in most places, it's easier to find the millions 
to build the parks than to find the thousands to make them work. But if we don't have the thousands, if we don't have the uses, if we don't have the activities, then they're not going to work. And I love parks, all of them, but we not only need large parks, we also need small ones. People said, oh, Gil, here in Oakland, do we need, should we do small parks or large parks? Well, actually, we should do both because they satisfy very different needs. The small neighborhood park, that's where we meet the parents of our children's friends. We develop a sense of belonging and a sense of solidarity so that it also improves safety. But we're not going to be able to play rugby on a neighborhood park. So we need the medium-sized parks. And we're not going to be able to go canoeing in that one, so we need the larger-sized park. So we need a city-wide park system with the small, with medium, with large. And also well-distributed throughout the city. Because it's not having a lot of parks in one side and nothing in the other. You know, cities like L.A. have a lot of parkland, but all of it is in one part of the city. Two out of three children do not have access to parks. And that, where they don't have access, also where the obesity is the highest, that's also where they have riots. But also, uh, something else that we, I did as commissioners, I found a small program called Ciclovia, a few kilometers and a few thousand people. And in three years, we turned it into the world's largest pop-up park. Sunday mornings, we pop it up. And people come out to walk, to bike, to skate. This is the different colors are the income levels. We increased it from a few kilometers to over 121 kilometers, connecting all of the major parts of the city so that it's not only an end in itself, but it's a means to go other places. And how do we do it? It's pretty simple. We open streets to people and close them to cars. And the magic happens. And this can be done in any city, anywhere, of any size. We get young and old and rich and poor and fat and skinny. But not everybody wants to walk or bike or skate. So along the road, we do aerobics and we do tai chi and we do cha-cha-cha. And we do all kinds of things. And it's around physical activity. Who comes? Everybody. All you really need is two feet and a heartbeat. And there you are. Young and old. It's, it's a great place where we get over one and a half million people every Sunday of the year and every holiday, 66 days of the year. And it is great because it changes minds. All of the sudden people realize that the streets are public places. Not just to move cars 24-7, but they can have different uses according to the time of the day, the day of the week, the week of the year. And this has become like a positive virus. That is spreading all over. The city of angels, that is also a city of cars now, LA, they've got their own. And we're working with Mayor Eric Garcetti, and now it's monthly. And Portland has another one. This has works in cities of 10,000 people, about 100,000, about a million, or 5 million, 20 million, like Mexico City. This is San Jose, where Google and all of this, 55,000 cars on a weekday, only people walking and cycling on Sunday. Paris. This, this really is something that is magnificent. Connecting is about social integration, about changing. One of the beauties, one of the things I love it the most is because we meet each other as equals. All of a sudden, the wealthiest people in the city and their spouses and their children are meeting the poorest people of the city and their spouses and their children doing the same activity. Some might have an original Nike shirt, some might have a fake Nike shirt. <laughs> some might have a $5,000 bike, some might have a $50, but they're having as much fun. And that equalizer is something that we need in our cities. We also, in three years, built 
over 280 kilometers with my brother was mayor. 280 kilometers of protected bikeways, a network. And we, it went from over 28,000 to more than half a million people cycling, always separating the pedestrians and the cyclists. And something that was very important is create a network. In some of these, some of the neighborhoods, it's almost impossible in beautiful Oakland to imagine the level of poverty. And why do we need to do good footpaths and good cycleways? Part of it is because it's going to be safer. But just as important is because we need to dignify the pedestrian. We need to dignify the cyclist. And that is almost as important as the safety itself. That equality is so important. And by the way, tonight when I'm talking about people walking, I'm talking about anyone that moves at the speed of the pedestrian, people on wheelchairs, people with walkers. By the way, anyone has heard of Shakira in New Zealand? You know what she was doing last week? She was doing a video with Carlos Vives, new songs called La Bicicleta, The Bicycle. And this is what we need. We need the leaders of New Zealand, the artists, the sports people the politicians, the business people, also to walk and bike. Now I lead two organizations, the World Urban Parks and 880 Cities, and I've been lucky to work in more than 200 different cities. And World Urban Parks, our goal basically is to provide quality parks, quality urban parks to everybody, and our website is worldurbanparks.org. But every one of the 200 cities, people say, Gil, what is that 880 Cities? Well, Eredicity is not really about parks or uh, footpaths or walking or cycling. Those are the means. Those are not the end. The end is how can we contribute to create vibrant cities and healthy communities where people are going to live happier. And wherever I go, people say, Gil, is this intersection safe? Can I send my children walking to school? Can my grandparents bike to get eggs or milk? Well, you don't have to be a transportation engineer. Three simple steps. We call it the 880 rule of common sense. Unfortunately, common sense seems to be the least common of the senses. <laughs> but anyway, three steps. Step number one, think of a child around eight years old that you love, your son, your daughter, your grandchild. Once you have that eight-year-old in mind, then go to step number two. Think of an 80-year-old that you love, your parents, your grandparents. Brothers, sisters. And when you have the aid and you have the 80 in mind, go to the third step. Would you send them across that intersection? Would you send them walking to the park? Would you send them riding their bike to get eggs or milk or to go to school? Would they feel safe? If you would, it's because it's safe enough. If you would not, it's because it's not. And we got to do it better. What if everything that we did in Auckland, everything, the crosswalk, the street, the school, the hospital, everything, had to be great for an 8 and an 80. It's not a 280. It's an 8 and an 80 as an indicator species. Because if it's good for the 8 and it's good for the 80, it's going to be good for everybody. From 0 to over 100, we need to stop building cities as if everybody was 30-year-old and athletic <laughs> and build great cities for all. That, that should be doable. That's the 880. But we got to move fast. We got to move fast. We need to develop a sense of urgency in many ways. When we saw the population is growing, it's not only at the world stage. In Auckland, it's growing. We have now, you got around 1.5 million, 1.6. It's going to increase by 50%. 50%. Huge. 
And when I said that we're living longer, it's not only in other places. Here in New Zealand, in New Zealand, you're going to, today there's about a half a million people over 65. In 20 years, it's going to go to over a million. In just 20 years. This is exciting in so many ways. You know, in New Zealand, if we had been born 150 years ago, the life expectancy was 34. So many of us would be dead by now. Can't you imagine? This is just 150 years ago when our great-great-grandparents were alive. In the history of humanity, we had reached 34. Now the life expectancy is over 80. Very clearly, we have learned how to survive. But when we got these issues such as public health crisis and climate change and traffic congestion, it's clear that now we've got to learn how to live. And that's what Oakland Conversations is about, about learning how to live together in so many ways on issues of culture, of public health, of urban planning, of mobility. It's about together finding out, okay, what role each, each one of us are going to play. And together as a group, because a lot of this is about the built environment. And like Einstein said, we cannot solve problems by using the same kind of thinking that we used when we created them. So I want to share with you eight messages in no particular order. The first one, change is hard. Change is hard. And I know that the deputy mayor <laughs> and elected officials and staff know Change is hard. It would be a lot easier not to do anything. It would be so much easier just to do more of the same. Maybe a little bit better, but just more of the same. However, change is hard not only in Auckland. Change is hard everywhere. In Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, the car was also taking over in the 50s and 60s. They were to create the first pedestrian street. I've been a senior advisor with Gale Architects for about nine years, and my friend Young Gale said, change was hard. They didn't want pedestrian street. They said, what a street for people walking. We have too many cars. And the weather is horrible. It's cold in the winter. It's hot in the summer. It rains all year. But the number one reason why they didn't want pedestrian street, they said, oh, that's not part of our culture. <laughs> pedestrian, that's for the Italians. <laughs> Because they are loud and noisy and they like to be on the streets. But we are Danish and we are cold and we don't go out. <laughs> well, now the Danish are more Italian than the Italians. <laughs> they love the pedestrian streets in, this, in the rain, in the sun. This is City Hall in Copenhagen. They used to, went from a car invasion to people places. More than 18 gigantic parkings have been turned into people places. Even in the middle of the winter, the pedestrian streets are very popular. And not only walking, now people bike. In the, the summer, in the winter, at all times. This morning, Mayor Lane Brown said that you are investing 200 million in the next two years on bicycle infrastructure. That's great. You're going to have 52 new kilometers of safe cycleways that together with the existing ones is about creating an 80-kilometer network. And he said he wants to have Auckland be a world-class cycling city. So this is what Auckland is going to look like. <laughs> and it's totally doable. You know, I have some of these photos, for example, at Rotterdam, which is nice because when people say, oh, you know, Amsterdam, it was built that way, which is not true. But nevertheless, Rotterdam was totally flattened during the war. And they built big roads, but nevertheless, they have fantastic facilities for cycling and for walking. And we need to have for all, everybody, young and old. It's not just for the 30-year-old in spandex. 
It's for everybody to have facilities. It's to have a city that is nice and competitive and where people will want to live. This is what Auckland can easily be like in the short term. But since change is hard, I want to give you three recommendations about the change. First, change. Change is not unanimous. Change is not unanimous. So whenever you start doing this bicycle infrastructure or any parts or any issue that is not your change, don't say, oh, we got to stop because there is no consensus. No, no, no. Change is not, never consensus. If you want to have anything by consensus, you have to water it down so much that it's not going to be changed any longer. You honestly have to listen to the citizens, but don't expect consensus. <laughs> Two, <laughs> the general interest must prevail over the particular. So when you go to any public meeting, ask people, make any comments, but based on the general interest. So if people say, oh, you're going to have the cycle way here, or my business, no, 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 don't talk about your business. Give arguments on the general interest. It might be the same argument, but frame it around the general interest, not around your business. And third, also tell people in public meetings, when you say no to something, you are also saying yes to something else. So if you say, I don't want to move this car parking to do a cycleway, okay, you are saying no to something, but you are saying yes to more cars and more sprawl and more pollution and more obesity or whatever. So when you say no to something, you are saying yes to something else. And the other thing that I want to ask you is, please, Auckland, you are a good city. Not a great one, yet. <laughs> you got to be honest. One of, the, one of the symptoms of a, great, of a really good city is that you know that you can get better. This is a process that never ends. But don't become complacent. Actually, being good is your biggest barrier. Because sometimes it's harder to move from good to great than from bad to great. Because we say, oh, we're already good. Oh, the economy said that we're one of the top five cities in the world. No, please tell the economy, the economy not to put you in the top five. It's better if they say, oh, the economy said we're 134th. We got to do better. So no complacency. Let me give you two or three examples of no complacency. Copenhagen, they are the best big cycling city in the world. It's not that big. It actually has less population than Auckland. Nevertheless, people are biking there and people biking in the rain. You know, they said there's no such thing as bad weather. It's bad clothing. Bad clothing. So they even bike sometimes without clothing. <laughs> <laughs> They are at 41. 41 out of 100 trips are done on bicycles. And they say 41 is not enough. We want at 50. They want to go to 50%. And it's not just this. You don't have to wear spandex and all these gears. You can wear regular shoes. <laughs> and it's not because they are poor. You know, here in Oakland, it's about 3%. In Copenhagen, 41. And they want to go to 50. And it's not because they are poor. They have a higher per capita income. But that is a nice city. You know, they had this public bikes that are heavy. They look nice, but they are horrible. <laughs> Last year, they were replaced by these ones that have their own GPS and got gears inside and all of this. They are building new protected bikeways, cycleways, where at one level is for cars, five centimeters higher for, uh, for bikes, five centimeters higher for pedestrians. They are widening others that are more narrow. They are creating green waves, so all the traffic lights are at the speed of the bicycle, not at the speed of the cars. They are building new bridges. Getting counters, because if you don't count, you don't count if you don't know how they are. <laughs> Creating connection between walking and cycling. But Copenhagen is much more than just riding bicycles. For example, here, eight years ago, there were six lanes of cars. They took away the four lanes in the middle for kilometers long. 
and they created a linear park. Imagine the thousands and thousands of condos there, what their life was when there were six lanes of cars as opposed to now. But this wasn't by consensus. It wasn't unanimous. People were complaining. So, so, but, you know, people are changing. These are the kind of things because these are the kind of cities that you got to benchmark yourself. I mean, Oakland, be careful. If you, if you want a list of cities that are worse than you, in five minutes you got a thousand cities. But if you compare yourself with cities that are worst, eventually you are going to look like those. <laughs> but instead, if you say, okay, which cities about our size, which one has the best parks? Which one is the best for walking? Which are the best for cycling? Which has the best climate change? We have the Compare with those. You need to be a world-class city in every way. There's absolutely no excuse. Among other things, because God was so generous with you, <laughs> it's a gorgeous place. So it's great. Copenhagen, making the link, public parks next to the schools so that the schools and the parks, they share their facilities. And that is so useful. Also, being flexible. In the summer, you walk in this round point. In the winter, you skate. But skating is nice, but if you put lights, it's even better. And if you put hot chocolate and music and so on. Victoria, Victoria in, in, in Canada. Victoria is doing an all ages, all abilities bike network. The mayor, she wants to do it in one term. So in the first six months, we help her do the plan. Now the whole plan was done in six months. Lots of public consultation. Now the budget has been approved, and now they're starting to build. And it's exciting, connecting. It has to be a network, not just one cycle way. One cycle way is nothing. So it's an all ages, all of it is network. You know, same as Oakland. It's exciting. Chicago, the mayor of Chicago came on board. And with Gabe Klein, they saw streets like Kensington. They didn't have anything. It was dangerous for cyclists. They didn't have a bike lane. Wherever they had bike lane, they had just painted line on the wrong side of the cars because they had the cyclists protecting the cars and not the cars protecting the cyclists. <laughs> first month, they roll up their sleeves. They start doing their work. In 30 days, they have their first protected bikeways. This is the cycleways. You know? 30 days. That's why I say it's not a technical issue. It's not a financial issue. It's political. Oslo, Norway, Os two weeks ago. These two announcements are two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, Oslo said we're going to do 510 kilometers. A network. A network. And you got to be better than Oslo, Norway. <laughs> Barcelona, already a really good city for walking. A great city for walking. Nice density, five, six, seven-story buildings. Very walkable. Two weeks ago, they said we're going to increase walkability by 60%, not by 5 or 10%, 60% of the streets. What are they doing in their grid? Every third street is going to be for cars. The two in the middle for walking. Can you imagine? That is really being bold. So that's what you need to do in Oakland. Be bold and be ambitious so that a good city is going to be even better. I know that change is hard, but change is doable. I know that all, some of you are already saying, oh, girl, but in Auckland we are different. <laughs> we got nothing in common with Barcelona or Copenhagen. We are unique. I know. Remember, always remember that you are absolutely unique, just like everyone else. <laughs> this is not like in the computer that we copy and paste. No, it's not about copying. It is about adapting, adapting and improving. We can learn from others what to do, what to avoid. But even within Oakland, each neighborhood is different. Okay, seven, because I got here, the timer says 19 minutes, so I better speak fast. <laughs> equity. Equity is not equality. I saw the other day a cartoon that is very clear. It's not about equality. This is equality. 
Some people are starting so far behind, and John spoke about it, that some people actually need two or three boxes, while others don't need any. When we evaluate any city, we should evaluate cities by how well we treat the most vulnerable people. Who are the most vulnerable people? The children, the older adults, the poor, the handicapped. And in many cases, we're not doing a good job. Last month, I was in Ohio in the U.S., and I was telling them, look, we're not doing a very good job. When we got about 13 million children in the U.S. living in poverty. That's 22%. So if you live in cities like Fresno, in one part of the city, you got one acre of park per 1,000 residents, in another part, five times as much. Two days ago, I was in Christchurch, and when I said this, someone was Googling and said, oh, Gil, you know, New Zealand is not 22%, it's 28 28. That doesn't make sense. And part of the things that we're talking about is about equalizers, the public space, the footpath, the bikeway, the mobility. For example, from the, from the point of view of geography, when I was there looking at the things, I went to some places in Cleveland where the life expectancy was 64. And 13 kilometers away, same city, 13 kilometers, it was 90. Can you imagine? And it's not Cleveland. You go to Washington and it's the same. You go to New Orleans, it's the same. I don't know what is worse. I was telling the people in Ohio that this happens or that they have accepted that this is a normal part of every life. They say, oh, yeah, their life is 55 years because they are lazy. What? You go to this place, they don't even have a grocery store. They got four times as many convenience stores. Their footpaths are horrible. The quality of the schools, no parks. And I know that there are so many good things in New Zealand, but one of them, the issue of equality in the OECD countries, New Zealand is, the, is in the bottom third. We gotta work in issues such as mobility when the leaders of the government are saying that are investing in public transit and in walking, in cycling. Well, you know, the people that have a car in New Zealand that use their car as a mode of mobility on average are spending 25% of their income on mobility, 25%. And actually, most of it is without even moving the car. Most of it is the depreciation of the car. You buy a car for $25,000, you sell it three years later for fifteen. dollars Okay, you spend $10,000 in three years. Plus this insurance, and then the use. And if it's low income, it might be 40%. If they were walking or cycling or taking public transit, they would spend only 5%. It's incredible. I mean, if you want to have two cars, three cars, four cars, have them. But if someone doesn't want to have, they should have that possibility. There is nothing that the governments could do that would have a higher impact on the financial situation of a family than being able to downsize from two cars to one or from one to zero. And that would also be great for the local economy because instead of spending $8,000 a year on cars that are built in Mexico or China, you're going to spend it in the restaurants, and gardenings and improving the houses is going to be great for the local economy. Six, the footpaths and the cycleways and the parks are important. For many people, it's not so obvious. I go to many cities and I show them these footpaths and these parks, and they say, Gil, go do some fundraising. But when I go to the same city and I show a pothole, they go crazy about the potholes. They think maybe a car is going to fall there. It's a, and the media, the media plays into this craziness. A TV station hired this woman. All she does goes and measures potholes and has a section at 6 o'clock, Tuesdays and Fridays, showing potholes. And the citizens, they get organized. Not about around the footpath, not around the playground, around potholes. And finally, when they take care of it, some elected officials and staff and media, they go and celebrate. So... 
So I started thinking, why is this a small pothole? Maybe it's because when we look at our city from the air, the biggest public space, public, that the belongs to all, rich or poor, young, whether you drive or don't, the biggest public space are the streets. The streets are between 20 and 40% of our city. And if we take out everything that is private, the homes and so on, it's between 70 and 90% of our city is huge. So what is the smart use? This is very, very important. Look at this, this. before I tell you about the, this city, let me tell you, this is very important because some people say, I don't care about health, I don't care about the environment. I only care about economic development. Well, we live in an ever more globalized world. And in a globalized world, the best people, they can live anywhere they want to. You know? By best people, I mean the best medical doctor, or the best pizza maker, or the best musician, or the best engineer. If I'm a really good carpenter, I can live anywhere in the world. Where am I going to live? Wherever me and my spouse and my children have the best quality of life. So every morning, the leaders of Auckland, private, public, NGOs, all of you should wake up thinking, how can we retain our best people? How can we attract? This is not an issue of quantity. It's an issue of quality. Auckland is going to increase by 50% no matter what. I mean, Auckland is so far ahead in the world that New Zealand in general, if you open the doors for 24 hours, you can double the population in 24 hours. So it's not quantity. We're talking it's about quality. This city had a river going through the middle. And, but 40 years ago, people were thinking it's efficiency, efficiency. So they built a road on top of the river. But seven years ago, they said, can we get the best people from Auckland to come over? They said, no, the people from Auckland don't want to go to that horrible street. And then someone said, wasn't there a river going down? And they brought it out. Look, same store, same street. So you want to live in this street or you want to live in this one? That is the idea. Are we building streets for cars or streets for people? Because we can do one or the other. Do we want our streets to look like car storage or actually help create communities? All of this is about how do we want to live. We dream that this is how we want to live, and then we go out and build this. <laughs> we are not consistent. This is all of Florence in, at the same scale as one intersection in Atlanta. So let's go to number five, play. Auckland, you got to play. It has to be a playful city, playability everywhere. You go and go, go to the bus, and this, you can have a swing while you wait for the bus. Or you can have a small park. This is great. Playability everywhere. Fantastic. You know, go, the kids waiting for the school bus. You know, sometimes we say children playing is fun and games. Of course it's fun and games. But it's much more than fun and games. For children, playing is learning. For children, when they play, that's where they, that, that's where they, where they develop their muscle strengths. Their cognitive thinking their coordination, their concentration is so important. That's where they develop that sense of belonging to the neighborhood, to the city. For children, they develop their friendships. So one goal that we should have in Oakland is that as you grow, every child should have a park or a player within 500 meters. Every child. So that they get all of these benefits. But not, not in 20 years, not in 30 years, by 2020, in the next three or four years. And it is totally doable to have these parks within everybody. And some of you might be thinking, oh, but Gil, what if the neighborhood doesn't have a park to improve the park and do something like this? Well, if the neighborhood doesn't have a park, let's think what belongs to all of us. The footpath, 
the, the school, the library, city hall, everything that is part. In New York, they did this study six years ago, and they found they have lots of park deserts. So they said, oh, we got these schools. So they went to the schools, and they said, you got this horrible thing that you call playground. We'll actually do a playground if you open it up to the community. You make a school park, and you open it after 4 p.m., and Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays. And they turn it into this. Look at all the green spaces and all of this. The green spaces is important because it helps to reduce attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. But it wasn't just one or two. It was they increased by 31% the playgrounds of the city without buying one centimeter of land. They increased 221 of these playgrounds. And if you don't have a school, then you can shut down a street or you can so they, we need to be creative. So what role are we playing? So number four, walk. Who can walk in tonight? And the others, what do you guys do? I, I don't see any cars in this room. <laughs> I don't see any buses. I don't see any bikes in this room either. You know, every single trip. What? Fantastic. The who, who rode their bike here? Oh, including the deputy mayor. Great. <laughs> Leading by example. You know, every trip begins and ends by walking. That's how we were created. You know, like the birds, they fly, or the fish, they swim, and the deer run. People, we walk. And when we walk, we love it because, you know, we use all our senses. We're walking, and we see the children playing, and we hear the birds singing, and we go in front of a coffee shop, and we smell the aroma. The old people walk, the young people, people we walk in the summer, we walk in the winter. We walk all the time. That's how we are. But it has to be safe. It has to be safe. John mentioned something terrible, that Oakland has over 44% of the people, the pedestrians that are killed. Well, yesterday, yesterday, people driving motor vehicles killed 741 people walking. 741. That's one more than one person every two minutes. And these are numbers from the World Health Organization. They are not accidents. They could be avoided. They are incidents. In Oakland, we need a vision zero. No one should be dying whether they're walking or cycling or in cars or in public transit. or in any, It doesn't make any sense. And I think you need to do whatever it takes to eliminate that. And it's dual if we want to improve walking. First, pedestrians got to be a priority. They have not been a priority when we do footpaths like this one. <laughs> <laughs> or when we allow the cars to go on the footpaths. You know, we do these roads, we're telling these people, woman, you are a second-class citizen. When we do six lanes for cars and we don't even have money to do a footpath, if we're going to improve walkability, we've got to lower the speed everywhere. 30K in all residential streets. Not in front of the schools. We do in front of the schools 30K. Why? Because it works. But we want our children to be safe only in front of the school or everywhere. That's why we need to have 30K everywhere. If you get hit by a car at 30K an hour, there's 5% probability of being killed. If you get hit at 50, it's over 85. And there are many, many studies that show the same. But it's not only because it's going to be safer, also because it's much more. Many, many more people walk. Because when the cars are going by at 50 or 60, it's not an enjoyable walk. When the cars are going by at 20 or 30, it is. So people walk and people socialize and they stop and they talk to their neighbors. That's why I say it's not accidents. If we do a small island in a crosswalk, we eliminate more than half of the incidents in the crosswalks. Why are we still doing crosswalks without a small island? 
So we should be doing. It's not really rocket science. The older adults who are getting older, the older adults, three times as many older adults are the ones in it that are hitting intersections as, the, as compared with the proportion of the population. So we ha should have a two-word law that pedestrians first. Three, sustainable mobility. It's not just about walking. Walking, cycling, transit, they're going to be best friends. So let me mention a couple of things about riding bicycles, using public transit, new uses of cars. I'm not saying that this is the end of the car industry. But the way we use cars is changing very, very, very fast. The young people in North America, 16 to 24, they purchase fewer cars in the last four years than any time in the last 40. All their adults, all their adults are terrified of losing their driver's license. Are terrified. So much that a, a doctor in Canada did a study and showed that when they are told they lose their driver's license, they have a similar reaction as when they are told that they are diagnosed with cancer. And it's not because they love cars. It's because they love mobility. They want to age in place. They want to continue shopping in the same places, visiting the same people. And some say, oh, the driverless car is going to be the solution. Well, if we don't change our behavior, this is what cities look like without driverless cars, and this is what they're going to look like with driverless cars. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about riding bicycles. Walking and cycling is not a frivolity. Walking and cycling is not a joke. Walking and cycling is the only individual mode of mobility for most people. Walking and cycling is the only individual mode of mobility for every child and youth in the world. So walking and cycling should be a right, the right to safe and enjoyable mobility. Unless you think that only the people that have the age and the money and the desire to drive a car have a right to individual mobility. That's why this has to do with democracy and human rights and equality and sustainability and everything is linked to everything. And if we're going to improve bikeability, it's not about painting showers on the pavement or putting up signs or doing bicycle parking or lockers, or teaching how to ride their bikes, or doing maps. No, none of that really works to increase cyclists, or even having bicycle public bikes. That is like getting the saddle before the horse. It doesn't work. That makes it nicer for the 3% that are already cycling. But that doesn't get new cyclists. What are the two things that increase? Two things. Lower the speed in the residential areas, and create a network, a network of, of cycleways that are safe. So everything that I said about 30K for pedestrian is the same for cycling. And for the, for the arterials, in the arterials we need a network of cycleways where there is a physical separation between the pedestrians and the cyclists and between the cyclists and the cars. And some, you might have the money to do it permanent, and that is great. But if you don't have the money on the political decision yet and you want to do a two or three year pilot, okay, then you can do it. Put some plastic bollards. But make sure that don't just paint a line. Enhance that painted line with some plastic bullets. It's going to be a huge difference. You need a minimum grid, a minimum network. If you don't have a network, it doesn't click. So we need networks. All cities that, and it's not expensive. Buenos Aires is broke, and they just did 130 kilometers. Seville, people sit in Seville, no one can bike because it's 45 degrees in the summer, because we love cars. No, it wasn't because that. It's because they did three cycleways that do not connect anything with anything. 0.6%. All of a sudden, they made the decision to do 150 kilometers, and they did 150 kilometers. It clicked and went from 0.6 to 7%. It didn't increase by 20% or 30%. It increased by 1,000%. We need to do, like when we do the power network, a network for power, a network for water, a network for bicycle. 
Look at this city, a medium-sized city. Orleans, they, were, they did a plan of mobility, walking, cycling, cars, everything, thinking of the summer, thinking of the winter, thinking people going to work, people to study, always separating the pedestrians, the cyclists, the cars. And this is a medium-sized city. This is something that Auckland is going to look like, but putting everything into place, the locker, the signage, the toilets, the bicycle parking, all of this. But the network is the most important. And in ONS, once you start coming close to the... Schools, in the school is not 30K an hour. In the schools, it's zero, zero. From 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., there are no cars in front of the schools. Only the people that live in front of the schools. And then they have ping pong and different games for the kids to arrive. And it's exciting. It's a city. We got to keep in mind that the quality of the infrastructure in our cities is a symbol of the respect for people. And if we're going to improve public transit, one of my brothers is mayor of Bogotá. He says that the civilized city... It's not the one where the poor have cars. It's the one where the rich use public transit. We need to build a public transit system for everybody, for the rich, for the poor, for everybody, in order for people to use it. Last month, I was working with the mayor of Quebec City, where they built Bombardier trains. And they, in Quebec City, they are doing a bus rapid transit. In China, the economy is doing well. The health and the education and entertainment improves. Mobility does not when it depends on the car. I, I did a training with 30 mayors from China at Yale University a few weeks ago, and the mayor Wang Su said, oh, Gil, we were having all of these cars, so we built a bus rapid transit. This bus rapid transit moves more people than all of the subway lines in China, except number two in Beijing. With the mayor of Malmo, Malmo is similar in size to Auckland. Malmo in Sweden, he said, oh, Gil, people don't like buses. So what did he do? He said, Gil, we put a nose on the bus, we covered the wheels, and now they look like trains. <laughs> <laughs> and people love him. <laughs> it's being gutsy. The people in Argentina were so proud, almost more than of Messi, they were proud of these lane. 16 lanes, 16 lanes for cars. The mayor of three years ago took out six lanes and created a bus rapid transit. And now he was Mayor Macri as of last year, as of the end of last year, is President Macri. My brother, the first time he was mayor, this is what the Japanese Corporation Agency was suggesting, do elevated highways. Fortunately, he said no, $10 billion. There was an issue, the cars wouldn't even park. Where there was, all of them were in the footpaths. Just getting the cars out of the footpaths was a huge fight. The retailers started hiring thousands of people to get signatures to impeach the mayor. But fortunately, they got 200,000, but they needed like 400,000. <laughs> then he started talking about a bus rapid transit. People said, what? It's like a subway, but it costs 120th? Well, this is what the transportation system used to look like. In 36 months, from idea to implementation, and this BRT moves more people than 90% of the subways of the world. Actually, like a subway, but above ground. So there are different ways, but of course, there are issues and there are problems, but all of this doable. But how do people get to public transit? That is one of the key elements. You know, you can also have small roads. Before, they used to say, if you don't have enough space for cars and public transit, only cars. Now, if you don't have enough space for is only public transit, or public transit, and walking, and cycling. So it's different modes and different ways. You know, the other day someone told me that if you have a, 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 that said, oh, now every, a mayor said, everybody's going to get out of their cars because we have these big buses. I said, you think anybody's going to get out of their cars when this is what the bus stop looks like? 
I know you don't have this horrible weather, but do the analogy. This is a secondary school, 1,500 students. So I showed this mayor at this other bus stop. And then he said, Gil, why are you showing me this bus stop? I said, maybe this is what the bus stop would look like if the decision makers use the bus service. <laughs> Number two. And then I'm going to go right up because the, the, I just ran out of time. Citizen engagement, the community is the expert. We got to honestly listen to the citizens to see what is it that they want. If I ask my daughter, what are we going to do in this park? She's going to say, oh, dad, let's do yoga. And in that park, let's do yoga. I said, daughter, not everybody wants to do yoga in the park. Some people want to do a fire pit. Others want to have a pizza oven. Others want to paint. Let's ask the citizens, what do they want to do? They have hundreds of ideas. Sometimes we can ask them for impatience. Sometimes for orchids. Impatience is, what can we do now? Low cost, low risk, high visibility, and orchids are longer term. And the one idea, benefits. If we're going to promote walkability and bikeability and public transit and parks and footpaths, let's not talk about those. Let's talk about the benefits, environment, economic activity, recreation, transportation, health. I'm just going to go only through public health. Is this what the future looks like? We have a huge issue with obesity. In New Zealand, we're spending billions and all over the world on obesity, on heart attack, respiratory problems, anxiety. More than 30%, one out of three people in New Zealand are obese. Actually, everyone that is uh, between 35 and 74, 30, more than 30% are obese. And it's not, it has not always been like this. It used to be only 10%. Now it's 31%. And among the 34 countries of the OECD, New Zealand is next to Mexico and the US, the two worst countries in the world. So you can say, okay, Nockland, we're gonna be the healthiest city in the world. Why not? We gotta work, everybody, all of this, all of you, private sector, public sector, this is what, Oakland Conversations is so fun and exciting because you can have big, bold goals working on both sides of the balance. Calories in, calories out. Calories in, we gotta work on the school lunches. We gotta work on having farmers markets in every neighborhood. We gotta work on the gardens, in the parks, in the schools, getting everybody, but also we gotta get people active. If people are active, and it's not about doing marathons, it's just 60 minutes a day for children, 30 minutes a day for adults, and it's more than half of the people in New Zealand are not sufficiently active. And physical activity is the wonder drug, and there's the only place to really do it as a normal part of everyday life is in the footpath, it's in the street, it's in the park. It's not through sports. Through sports are fun and nice, but you're gonna do it once or twice a week. Walking and cycling or taking public transit, you're gonna do it every day as a normal part of everyday life. And that's what we need to do. And all of this, mobility and public place and so, they improve the physical health. But let's keep in mind that there is no health without mental health. So we also gotta work about mental health. Dep depression is the world's no number one cause of disability. If we have contact with nature, it's gonna improve our mood and cognitive attention. If we have in our neighborhoods, if we have, are close to green spaces. All of a sudden, we're gonna have less depression, less anxiety, it's gonna be great. So planting trees, all of this is, is a goal. All of this is totally doable. So we gotta work, and that's what Oakland Conversation is about, is breaking barriers between the departments in the city, between the city and the private sector, between the local government and the central government. In Japan, the Shirinjoku is forest bathing. People go to the parks and they get forest bathing. Just two days, and all of a sudden, your anti-cancer cells go up by 50%. Some people go to the parks to play tennis, but others actually go, and they are on the paths. So these are 10. So I just want to end by saying there are some challenges, but more than challenges, there are great opportunities. But if we define our city around cars, all we're going to get is more cars. And then we're going to have to invite our friends to help us cross the street. 
So what do we do? We build more roads, building more roads to solve mobility. And it's not only highways. I was in Milan, and the cars are taking over and asphyxiating the city. They used to have these walking paths, and now they are allowing the cars to get everywhere. Building more roads to solve mobility is like trying to put out a fire using gasoline. It doesn't work. But if we design our city around people, we're going to have healthier and happier people. So we got to think outside the box. These are not technical issues. These are not financial issues. They are political with a big P. And everybody has to participate. We need to build broad alliances. All of the departments, we got to have the elected officials at the different levels. We got to have the public sector staff from all departments without any barriers. And we got to have the community, the activists, the media, the business community, the universities. And I want to end with an example that these are not technical issues. We love to work with children, work with all of the children in Auckland. We ask these children, what do you do at drawing? How does your city look like? Without, what, what does your, so how do you want your city to be when you have your parents' age and you have children of your own age? And people say, oh, great, because the children are the future. No, 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 it's not about the future. If we educate the children very, very well, they go home and they educate their parents. So these kids started doing drawings. This one is only 13, and he wrote, I want few cars, I want many people walking, and many people cycling, and he, he didn't ride, but he drew an area for pedestrians, for cyclists, for buses, and for cars. And then as if that wasn't enough, he drew a public park and low buildings with street-level activity. A few weeks after this, I was doing a workshop with the PhD students in South Korea, and I said, I hope you study very, very hard, because now the 13-year-olds can summarize urban planning 101 in one drawing. <laughs> so years ago, we were not even talking about these, top these topics. Now we are talking. An Auckland conversation, but now we got to move from talking to doing. It's not about sustainable mobility or public places. It's about creating a vibrant city and healthy communities where all people are going to live happier. I wish you much success. Thank you very much. Thank you. There may have never been that kind of energy in this room until tonight. <laughs> Let's give Gil another hand, please. <laughs> so you've listened, maybe you had your mind blown, um, but this is a two-way exchange and this is the part of Auckland Conversations when we get to invite a panel up here and we get to ask them all questions, including Gil. So let me um, not hesitate to bring up our three panelists. We have Margaret Delvin, or Devlin, sorry, Margaret. She chairs the Seniors Advisory Panel, which provides strategic advice on, uh, to Auckland Council on issues related to older Aucklanders. A key aim of the panel is uh, that Auckland becomes a member of the International Network of Age-Friendly Cities. Please welcome Margaret. Ian, Ian Maxwell, in addition to his love for the outdoors and being an avid cyclist and runner, he's also the Community Services Director at Auckland Council. I believe parks is in your portfolio, Ian. Um, he has a keen interest in creating environments and initiatives that promote well-being and his focus on community empowerment, encouraging Aucklanders to be more active, more Auckland. Let's welcome Ian to the stage. Thank you. 
And last but not least, Catherine King. Catherine is the manager of walking and cycling in Auckland Transport. Her team is responsible for facilitating more people to walk and cycle in Auckland through a program of investment in infrastructure, campaigns, and events. Uh, she came back to New Zealand after uh, 14 years working in London, uh, developing some skills and tricks of the trade. Uh, now she's back here for, uh, in, in the last 18 months, we've seen an unprecedented uh, infrastructure development around cycling. Please welcome Catherine. So, so we do have only a limited amount of time. Um, so might I remind you all who want to ask questions um, that they're actually questions. So a lot of times people get up and it's great to grandstand in front of a big crowd. Let's not do that tonight because we just simply don't have time. Um, think about what you want to say before you say it and raise your hand and someone with a mic will come around and find you and then you can ask your very brilliant question to our uh, esteemed panelists. So. I see some hands already in the audience. I was going to ask the first question, but I'm going to just cede the first question to the first person selected to ask it, please. At what age, this is probably to Catherine, at what age do you recommend I send my kids out of my apartment to play in the parks alone now and in five years' time? Catherine, and maybe everyone. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, um, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old and I, I wouldn't send him out on his own at the moment, but I like to think that we're starting to build a, a city where in the next couple of years with some training, I will be able to uh, let him go out on his own and explore an adventure, uh, much like uh, I did as a child, and that's uh, certainly going to happen as we start to invest in our... Uh, greenways networks and our networks of slow, quiet neighbourhood streets uh, that link us in our neighbourhoods to our parks and our, our shopping centres and useful local places. Maybe a corresponding question for Margaret is, um, at what age do you have to stop going out to public places? Is there an answer to that, Margaret? I think there's only one answer. Um, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> And I think there's plenty of evidence for that, yes. Ian, any, any thoughts, Ian, from the Parks Director? Look, I'm really encouraging of people to get out as early as they can. And it's, it's um, three and a half. I mean, I, I think there will be families who will want to go. We all have different views about our children and their abilities and the kids they're with. I Personally, I'd probably be reasonably close, I'd, but I'd certainly let them off the, the leash, if you like, to get out and enjoy things. And in terms of age, I completely agree. There's absolutely no limit. And, um, you know, we're in this room to create a city which is fantastic for everyone and, and that people can express themselves in the way that they wish to. And that's getting out and enjoying our city. So, look, I'd, I'd, um, I'd chance it. I'd get out and do it. All right. How about another question from the floor? This is a question for Jill, primarily. Uh, Gil, sorry. Um, I believe that um, you talked about um, the, how things aren't unanimous and you have problem with consultation. Consultation can really slow things down. I believe there was one instance where you just went out and did it. Um, this was involved closing a street to cars and turning it into a mall. Do you want to tell us a bit about how that process might work? No, I, I think that in general, um, consultation doesn't really slow down process. I think uh, it cannot be ongoing forever. No, at some point, consultation ha has to be selective. It cannot be too, 
And I think the, the, the question started with consultation. The end of the answer uh, was engagement. I think there's a distinct difference between the two. Can we talk a little bit about how we don't just consult projects through to get it over the line, but how we engage the community for the long-term wins? Any thoughts on that from the panel? Um, I think in, in Auckland Transport, we're certainly um, reviewing how, how we try and engage uh, people in our projects. Uh, we have a couple of recent examples with our cycling investment where we've gone out right from the beginning and asked people where they want to be able to cycle, what are important local destinations, and more importantly, what are the key barriers that are, are stopping them from doing it right now? So that's giving us um, hugely useful data and information to, to help us then build um, a more detailed projects that we then come back and consult on again. We've also had examples across the city, particularly we were consulting with particular groups, and I'm thinking of um, children or youth around perhaps um, skateboard parks or cycle uh, facilities. And you get a, not only do you get a facility that they wish to, um, to utilise, you get a facility that they love, and you, and you can see with the care and attention provided to that facility afterwards that the consultation up front and the very way that Gil described uh, is important for actually getting the, not only the project finished, but actually how it is utilised later and how it contributes to that particular community. And I think the, the, cons the engagement at the end of that process is the key outcome. And I think you need to have also very engaged the citizens before, during and after. Mm -hmm. It's not just when you're going to open up the project that you do a party and you invite the citizens, it's too late. It's going to be vandalized. It's not going to be well used. The citizens are the experts in the initial phase when you say, okay, what do you want to do? The citizens are the experts in the what, not in the how. So don't invite the professionals at the beginning, the architects and the designers. So you're going to do a park. As they say, what do you want? They might say, I want to walk. So then they want a walking path. They don't know if it should be two meters or three or four. They don't know if it should be artificial grass or what. Then is when you invite the experts and you say, the citizens want to walk. Then the experts know if it should be an oval or spaghetti or what. So I have them engaged during and after. And can we also draw some threads between actually, I mean, this is ultimately about democracy, or it's about planning our cities, but it's also retaking back democracy and, 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 and instilling it with a vitality that I think is the same kind of vitality we want to instill in our, in our infrastructure, in our, in our streets. Can you draw connections between creating those places where public discourse actually happens? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle, because right now people don't talk to each other as much because we don't have necessarily as many places to do so. Talk about exactly. that engagement. Don't, don't do a community engagement. For, like for example, you're going to do a skateboard park. I'll give you a concrete example. I was in a city that they were doing a skateboard park for low-income, visible minority kids. Uh, and then I went to the public meeting. They had a fancy facilitator from New York, and he was going. And then I said, well, how do you like the meeting? He said, wow, it's great. I said, he said, it's full. We expected 50 people. We got 70. I said, yeah, but the people that are going to use the skateboard park are low-income, visible minority. Mostly are going to be 10 to 24-year-olds. Here in this room, everyone is over, over 40. Everyone is very white, very well-educated. And then he said, oh, it's their fault. Uh, we put an ad on the paper, and they're not here. I said, 
I said, you know, 14-year-old, they don't read newspapers. Also, if we were at a five-star hotel at 7 o'clock at night, if you really want to listen to these kids, you got to go at 3 p.m. when they're coming out of school and have some pizza and juices. So if we want to listen also to the older adults, we need to go out and listen to them where they're already meeting, or ethnic groups or so on. So the key element is, is to have honesty. If you honestly want to listen, or if you just want to have a meeting, tokenism, so that when you go to city council and they say, did you ask the community? Yes, checked. And I see many, many meetings where you have more consultants and more city staff than citizens. Obviously, they are not the proper citizen engagement. And, and we, would, we would never do that here in Auckland, I expect. <laughs> How about another question from the floor? Go ahead. Um, Hill, you actually addressed the um, importance of equity, and I just had the question, how hard is it to get um, for walking and cycling infrastructure? Um, it tends to be low-hanging fruit in a lot of cities. Um, we go for low-hanging fruit, and I'm just kind of addressing the panel, I guess, as well. In Auckland, do you think we're addressing equity in our investment in cycling and walking? Equity is critical. In most places, they end up doing most of the bicycle infrastructure where the rich people live. Mm. In Mexico City, where there is 20 million people, they ended up doing bicycle infrastructure only in the three wealthiest neighborhoods. Uh, and you say, why? Also, public bikes. You go to Washington, D.C., and they have public bikes only in the wealthy neighborhoods. There's not one single low-income neighborhood with public bikes. So we need to give a top priority. When we talk about equality, uh, this, the, uh, and there is no better place because the public places are the best equalizers. So that's where we need. Also, many of the low-income people live in small condos. So they might live in 35-square-foot homes. When you live in a 35- or 40-square-foot home, you don't live there. You sleep there. You live outside. So you, you need even better footpaths and even better cycleways and better parks and better connectivity with public transit. So the issue of equity should always be on top of mind. I think, that is a, I think that is an issue in Auckland. Um, one advantage we do have is our network of local boards. So you, 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 not, you don't have a single decision maker operating across the city. You have a multi, you have 21 decision makers and there's a, and that, that, that there's a focus around delivering into their community. So I think that, that is an advantage in terms of, of where Auckland is. But look, I know looking at the at complaints and other issues that come into Auckland Council and you can map them and uh, there are large swathes of the city where you get very few complaints and they are often the low socioeconomic um, areas of the city. So as, as, as members of our organisation, we need to particularly focus to ensure that we, that we get equity and we work with those communities. Any more thoughts about what that focus looks like? How do we actually dig in and do that? Well, I think you've got to keep in mind that it's not only the hardware, but it's also the software. It's the infrastructure, but it's also the programs. Because I see it many times, we just invest in infrastructure. But it's, those little, it's the uses and the activities. It's that Halloween is coming up and someone is carrying the pumpkins. It's Christmas is coming and someone is, is organizing singing. It's throughout the, to, throughout the year, we need to have those uses and activities. And that is also a way to see it. From the point of view of mobility, when we invest in public transit. And you mentioned very well the word democracy. Sometimes we have buses that are totally full of people. You got 60 people on the bus going at the speed of one car with one person. If democracy works, 60 people on a bus should have the right of space of 60 cars with one person. 
So that is the kind of thing that we need to, to, to start rethinking about equity and democracy as one. And I think buses should have the right to vote, just personally. <laughs> Any other questions from the floor, please? Hi, uh, this is a question for Ian Maxwell probably. Um, I read in the read this in the Herald a day or two ago that um, council have asked Panuku Development Auckland to sell off quite a few parks and open spaces, about sort of sort of ten to fifteen, not overly large spaces, but still it seems I guess after watching after being here today it seems a bit short sighted. Um, and so just like to know why that's happening. Sure. Look, um, the particular sites that were identified were, you might recall that, or well, it still exists, um, there's a large open uh, sports field at the ex-Auckland uh, University site on Merton Road. So the community of, of Auckland purchased that to ensure that the sites would remain open to the public. Uh, and in order to fund that, a number of small parks nearby are being put up for sale. So, so, there's, a, so there's a... Well... In order to purchase um, quite a large area of open space and protect that, that's, th th there are some open areas that are for sale. So let's bring in the issue of um, just maybe rates rises, right? There's an expectation that we don't pay more, but we get more. Um, any thoughts on that? So we do, we're, we're forced to make some tough decisions about what we prioritize. Um, larger parks for, for smaller ones or parks over another community service. Um, how do we thread the needle between public expectation and cost? Well, I think that you should never, ever, ever sell public assets to pay expenses. If, never. However, however, you can sell public assets to buy other public assets, not to pay expenses. So it's like at home. You're not going to start selling your furniture to pay the the electricity. No, if you can sell an asset for another asset. So if, if you have a part of the city that doesn't have parks and some have too many parks, maybe you can do. The other thing that is very important is like the fees, an issue of equity. I find many cities, I, I don't know how it works in Auckland, but I found many cities. The other day I was in a city where the people in parks and recreation were very proud because they said we have the highest recovery rate in the US. And I said, so the recovery rate is, of all the total expenses, how much money they get back through fees, charging for swimming lessons or for use of the facilities. And then, you know, I said, you know, I don't know if I should give you a pat in the back or I should give you a kick in the butt. <laughs> because I said, okay, how much money you recover? He said, 67%. And I said, okay, how, how do you build your community center or your park? He said, through taxes. I said, who pays taxes? I said, everybody. The rich, the poor. So I said, you are like a Robin Hood, but in reverse. I said, you get 67% through fees. How do you pay the other 33%? He said, oh, through our budget. How do you get your budget? Taxes. Everybody's paying. Okay, and who's using the facilities? They are charging $200 for 10 swimming lessons. So who can pay the $200? Only the upper income people. So everybody's paying, but only the upper income. So I said, probably the best parks and recreation system in the U.S. is Minneapolis. And the recovery rate in Minneapolis is only 11%. They think that it should be a citizen's right to swim, to participate in any activity, and that it should be funded through taxes. So the swimming lesson that he, at this other place, they charge 200 for 10 classes. In Minneapolis, they charge only $20. 
They charge something because otherwise people sign up and don't show up. So these are the kind of things about equity that we cannot be a Robin Hood in reverse, that everybody pays for the parks and the facilities, but only the upper income can actually get to use them. I see a bunch of hands out there. Can we get some mics on those hands, please? Um, there was a mention about the density of Barcelona and the success of public transportation. Uh, so I just want uh, to ask Gil if you think density is something directly connected to public transportation and how important is that for the city development? Totally. Totally. I think land use and transportation are two sides of the same coin. If you don't have enough density, you are not going to be able to have public transit. That doesn't mean horrible 40 or 50 story buildings where people are totally disconnected with the city. You can have exactly the same density with six story buildings next to each other or 40 or 50 story buildings every other block. So most of the wonderful cities of the world like Paris or Barcelona or Copenhagen, whatever, they are very dense, but at five or six or seven story buildings next to each other, not, a, not that very high. So you do need and one of the things is that cities in New Zealand, like Auckland, cannot continue to grow out indefinitely. That's totally unsustainable, and we are, you, I think you are mortgaging the future of the future generations. That, 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 yeah. But, but, but this, this is so important that let me give you two quick examples. One is Mexico, one is Toronto. In Mexico, over the last 30 years, all of the cities of more than 50,000 people, which are 92 cities, they grew by two times the population, which is not good or bad in itself, if you do it right. But the population grew two times, but the footprint grew 11 times. How are you going to bring sewage and water and education and transportation and, and everything? Toronto. Toronto is like Auckland. It's growing very fast. It's going to grow also 50% in the next 22 years. Huge. And there's 13 municipalities around. So the state government put a green belt around and said no one can grow beyond that green belt. That was 10 and a half years ago, and it's worked very, very well. Initially, the municipalities complained a little bit, but at the end of the day, they had to adjust because it was a higher order. And it couldn't be done municipality by municipality because one was doing the right thing, but the next door was not. So, so at the end of the day, they said, Any, everybody, you cannot grow beyond this. So it cannot be always because we have lots of land. Well, Canada is the second largest country in the world, and we only have 35 million people, so it could continue to sprawl. So putting a green belt, having continued to expand indefinitely, it's almost criminal. We, 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 this is going to be totally unsustainable. It's going to be impossible to provide public transit or to provide a walkable or to have parks within walking distance or to have any of the things that we are talking about if there is not a limit to the expansion. Yeah. <laughs> any other thoughts from the panelists on that one? We want to be a little quiet before the 22nd of July, perhaps? I agree. <laughs> Good on you. All right, let's let's. We've got a few moments left. Um, how about another question out there to throw to this panel? Can we get a mic on whoever you're next to? Yeah. So I want to continue that conversation. Mm. I'm I'm from Wellington, and every morning I wake up and I listen to the government um, announcing 
that the only way to solve Auckland's growing problems is to get bigger, 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 bigger. And now they've announced a million a billion dollars to help the infrastructure to make Auckland get bigger, bigger, bigger. And my question is, what is this community in this room who don't live out in the WAP WAPs going to do to persuade the council to make the infrastructure or whatever supply the objectives that Gil's been talking about tonight to make those new communities, if they're going to happen, better. You've been talking about having communities that have the say to create communities, and here you are building communities that don't have any community to say about it. And, and how do you change that? How do you change that? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Well, she was asking if the people in the audience know that. <laughs> but you're totally right. I think that is the value of Auckland, on Auckland Conversations, mm -hmm. that this has to transcend. It doesn't matter who gets elected or not in October. Some of these issues are not left or right. It's not one political party or the other political party. They have to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. So my, I totally agree that everybody in this room, there's not going to be a Martian coming down to fix our city. It's up to all of us working together, all of the different departments in the city, elected officials at the different levels, the citizens, the activists, the media, the universities, the business community, everybody. For example, you, you're living with the seniors, the older adults, they could be fantastic allies. They have the time to write the emails and make the phone calls and go to public meetings. So we gotta get every, everybody together. It doesn't matter how we arrive. That is a sentence the other day by Martin Luther, King that he, he used to say, we probably came in different boats, but now we are all on the same boat. So let's make these decisions together. And that, that is very, very important. Things will happen. If you're not making the phone calls, if you're not sending the emails to the media and to elected officials and to staff, if you're not going to the public meetings, someone else is. And someone else is setting the agenda. And please don't let set the wrong agenda because then you're going to regret it for many, many decades to go. And perhaps not to try to put too peachy a spin on things, um, you know, the conversation among groups that don't always get along, like perhaps local governments and central governments, the tenor of that conversation seems to be changing. Um, and I don't know if people have some observations about that and some of the opportunities ahead of us in this particular space based on a more collaborative, uh, you know, sort of common agenda uh, with those who are, who, are, who are traditionally not always on our side. Um, in my experience in, in working in Auckland for the last year and a half or so, um, I think we're starting to move towards people asking what's next, what's happening next, what, what's the next change that's coming for, for my area, particularly walking and cycling, and less so of um, worry about that change. And that's, that's very exciting for Auckland. I think we, um, we can't get complacent about that and we have to keep demanding that change and voting and, and asking the questions. All right, we're going to go to lightning round because we're just about out of time. So brace yourselves. Um, what's one thing, the one thing on top of your mind right now, panelists, that uh, you can do to make Auckland an 880 city right now, top of mind? Margaret. Become an age-friendly city. <laughs> Excellent. With political will to do so. Thanks, Gil. I want to ensure with all the growth that's taking place that, that our kids are within 10 minutes of a park. Um, for me, it's giving our residents travel choice so we don't have to keep moving about the same way that we have options. 
If it's not great for an 80-year-old and it's not great for an 80, then it's not good enough. Do it better. What's one thing we should stop doing? We'll go the other way. Gil, you've been here just a few hours, really. <laughs> but still, the question remains. You're, you're, uh, you've, you've already made some observations. So what, can we, what do we need to stop doing in Auckland? Oh, don't listen to the civic cadavers that go to the meetings. <laughs> People that go to, you thought they were dead because they haven't done anything good for the community in the last two or three years. And then you go to the communities and all of a sudden they resuscitate. <laughs> not to support, to oppose. So th there will always be opposing. So those people that scream, it's not about who screams the loudest. So I would say, honestly, listen to the people and have the conversation. And I, I'm very positive, so I would say it's not about what not to do, but about what to do. I, I, I think you got all of the elements, starting for a, with, with a wonderful physical situation, great levels of education, a lot of uh, interest in awareness. Uh, so there is absolutely no excuse. I would say the only one thing is don't give up, don't be complacent, don't settle for things, be ambitious. Auckland has to be a world-class city in every way. Don't compare yourself with the thousand that are worse than you. Compare yourself with the 10 or 20 that might be better than you in any one specific area. And you should be able to lead the world. And I'm saying that from a selfish point of view, because the better that Auckland does, you're going to pull the other New Zealand cities ahead. And then you're going to start pulling the other cities in the world. And the same way that Copenhagen becomes a model for cycling or Barcelona for walking. You know Auckland is going to become for a sustainable city. And that is going to be great for everybody. Anything you'd stop doing, Catherine? One thing? Um, I think if we decide to do something, if we decide to um, make something better for people walking or people cycling, then we remain true to that and we do it really well so that we attract the, the most people possible to whatever investment that we're making. Don't stop halfway when Catherine is doing the bicycle network <laughs> and some people start complaining and sending letters to the paper. Don't be afraid. That's going to happen. Don't be afraid. If you stop halfway, it's going to be the worst of both worlds. The cyclists are going to be upset because there is no place to ride, and the non-cyclists are going to be upset because they're going to say you are wasting money and no one is using it. So know that before she finishes doing the network, there will be a lot of letters to the paper and, and a lot of complaints. Once you begin, do your <laughs> move forward. Finish it. Ian, any final words, Ian and Margaret? Oh, it's, it's probably um, stop doing the same things. We are a very, we're a rapidly changing, very diverse community, and we need to continue to adapt. So. Great. Yeah. Margaret, any final thoughts for you? Um, just uh, don't procrastinate, I guess. That um, happens a great deal, and let's just have incremental change that works. Fantastic. Well, hey, let's give them a, a round of applause, please. <laughs> I heard a lot of ambition, energy, enthusiasm, and smarts from that panel. A good segue to our Deputy Mayor, Penny Holtz, who will offer up the vote of thanks. Kia ora koutou katoa. Yes, one quick thing to do, one quick thing not to do. One quick thing not to do is to reinforce the democratic deficit by electing cave people. One good thing, <laughs> one, one good thing to do 
as elect brave politicians. So I want to take a second to acknowledge my very dear colleague, um, Councillor Chris Darby, who's here today. And him and I both had a fairly rough day. We need an antidote to that, and we needed vision and bravery and the, you know, get on with it and do it. And um, as an ex-Catholic girl, that speaks to me. Chris, you are a treasure, and I just want to thank you for your work. I also want to um, thank Auckland Transport for the bangles of power. The six-year-old in me feels like we can solve anything with these on our, with these on our hands, and um, I proudly will wear them. I've been a completely converted cyclist for the last 10 months, and I cycle every day and have pretty much unused my car about five times, it's quite a remarkable and freeing thing to do. And certainly for me, I hadn't really realised that cycling was a, a, an act of standing up for democracy and human rights and reclaiming that dignity of cyclists and, and walkers. And I think that really spoke to me tonight, Gil. Um, for those of us who've lived in countries where poverty is, is highly visible and part of daily life, that is even more important. I think there's just a couple of things that I, we, we need to hold on onto with this. We do need to be brave. It's very easy to, to clap and hear and feel inspired. But I'd also like you to clap and cheer the politicians who say we might not reduce your rates, you know, because some of this actually comes at a price. It doesn't come for free and it doesn't come easily. And I think you need to interrogate people about how they plan to spend your money and make sure that they plan to spend your money on things like this. Finally, I think the 8 to 80 concept is utterly critical. And Margaret Devlin, who I've known for a very, very long time, going back to old Waitakere days, when we first started to talk about safe city accreditation and um, first call for children and things like that, people thought the earth would stop turning and, um, you know, and civilization as we know it might cease. This is simply a way of saying from eight, whether you're eight or whether you're 80, we need to do what's right for you. And the thing that turned me from being a non-cyclist to a cyclist was the construction of the pink cycleway. At 57, I'm not quite 80, but at 57 that suddenly felt like a safe thing for me to utilise in my cycle from Te Aratu Peninsula each day. So these small things make huge changes. And Gil, you've taken us on a complete tour de force. I'm so proud of the people that I get to work with on a daily basis. We can make these changes but we certainly need to step up to the plate. And my challenge, as it often is at these Auckland conversations, is you are the community who will make that happen. We're the politicians who may hold the final pen, but you tell us what to do. Give us the correct writing instructions and make sure there are people there who can actually carry that through. Kia ora. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.